Welcome to the final part of the mini-series with the psychedelic philosopher of mind, Peter Shustedage. If you found the series interesting so far, please share it around, subscribe to the mailing list at voiceclub.com and leave a review on the platform you use to listen. Let's get into it. So Peter, you were just mentioning the link between whitehead and epigenetics. Yeah, so um, in terms of evolution and uh, a way of thinking about uh, evolution in terms of, uh, you know, teleology or whatever, Whitehead had more of an actual influence on the evolution of science than people realise. Because epigenetics, which used to be heresy in science, it's the notion that the expression of genes is caused by the environment rather than former, former genes. So in other words, the way you behave has an effect upon the expression of your, not only your genes, but the genes of your offspring and even um, a generation thenceforward. Yep. So epigenetics, some people say it's a return to Lamarck. You know, Lamarck came up with this theory of evolution before um, Darwin, which said believed in um, soft inheritance, as it was known. Yeah. So if you acted in a certain way, that behavior would somehow be taken after by your children and yeah. grandchildren. People didn't believe it, but actually now with epigenetics, in a way, that's a form of Lamarckism because, yeah, the environment does affect the genes of one's offspring. Yeah. Epigenetics now, it's been, you know, established scientific field for the last 15 years or so, but it was um, created really by someone called C.H. Waddington, um, the biologist, geneticist and epigeneticist. And he, in his autobiography, he explicitly said that he was a Whiteheadian and he was kind of... um, secretly bringing Whiteheadian metaphysics into his hypotheses. And um, by doing that, I mean, there's, there's a tract, for example, in Modes of Thought, where Whitehead says, you know, our idea of the gene is an abstraction because it completely abstracts from its environment. What really goes, a gene is part and parcel of its environment, its cell and so and the cell, the organ, the organ, the body, the body, the, the actual environment around us. All of this is part of one interacting process. So to just delineate the gene is like delineating the atom, you know, but rather, as we know now, the atom is part and parcel of its environment and can be translated to energy. But the same, same as with the atom, so with the gene. And so even in the 1930s, Whitehead was talking about how um, a form of sort of pure neo-Darwinist genetics can't be right. And Waddington tested for this. And as a result of that, we have epigenetics today. And of course, epigenetics we know is part of must be a crucial part of evolution mm. because it's about the expression of genes. Mm. That means that one's behavior influences evolution. Mm. It's not all about mutation, mm. sexual selection, natural selection. Right. And even more than that, something that Thomas Nagel, the philosopher Thomas Nagel, has spoken about recently, is this notion that if you reject epiphenomenalism, the view that, as we said, mentality has no effect on the body or the environment and no effect upon later mentality either, if you reject epiphenomenalism, so in other words, you believe that the mental has an effect upon the body, as most people actually believe, you know, if you desire something, it will actually cause your body to move. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to accept mental causation. Otherwise, for example, reason has no purpose. And as Popper said, if you, well, Popper said that epiphenomenalism was anti-Darwinian or anti-evolutionary because we would not have evolved, not only as humans, but all, you know, mammals and so on. We would not have evolved mentality if it did absolutely nothing, if it had no purpose. Vestigial organs, they don't have a purpose now, but they did have a purpose in the past. Mm-hmm. But with epiphenomenalism, mentality never had a purpose and doesn't have a purpose, unless it's sustained and is the primary aspect of our reality, of our lives. Yeah. So um, if, you're, 
if you're an evolutionist, you should believe in mental causation. Now, here's the interesting ramification of that that Nagel brings out, but Popper didn't. If you believe in mental causation, then you have to accept that mental causality, in other words, thinking, must have had a profound effect upon evolution, the, you know, the physical evolution of bodies. So through Whitehead and uh, Nagel and Popper and so on, um, although I think evolution is, of course, true, it's a true process, I think we only have, again, an abstraction of it. I think we'll, there's so much more to learn about it. Yep. Epigenetics is the first step in realizing that mental causation is a real force. Mm. Not necessarily the same thing as free will, but our minds do have an effect upon physical reality. Right. So you telling me, Peter, that these Facebook meme pages are actually deeply involved with the future evolution of humanity? Um, everything plays its part. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, the thing, I mean, look, this, this um, you know, you might have even included it in your summary of, of Jung on your webpage, but that this was a view that accords with a Jungian understanding of archetypes. Right. Just in, just in that, well, I mean, if mentality is involved in directly in in the affecting the course of evolution then mm -hmm. so, therefore so are our metaphysics which you might take as on this kind of view where action is considered the most real metaphysics is ultimately about informing the deepest substrata of the cogs that turn what ultimately become our actions yep. however you characterize how they filter up from that deep level yep. perhaps through the unconscious and what have you and so interacting with that foundational source and interacting with whatever the process of engaging with being is that allows you to move between these realms, so to speak. Yeah. I think, we're, in other words, we're uncovering other forms of causality other than the known four forces of nature. If, right. if archetypes are real, then, of course, they will have an effect upon um, one's behavior, one's character. Yeah. You know, that's their purpose, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And thus, evolution itself. Yeah. In fact, if you don't believe in mental causation, you don't really believe in psychology as a science because right. it would just be reducible to neurophysiology. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's it's isn't it isn't it so interesting? I, this is a so slightly different question. Then it seems to me if we just take a Bergsonian approach, where we have on the one hand intellectualization, roughly put in Russell's terms, the scientific impulse, and on the other hand of Bergson, we have intuition, roughly put on the Russellian conception as the mystical impulse. We have these two sides, so to speak, of man, and well, it seems that in different uh, disciplines in different areas of life perhaps poetry as as versus analytic philosophy you have an identification with one rather than the other in some sense do you think that the the psychological disposition of an individual just their temperament essentially would influence the discipline they end up philosopher might end up pursuing and therefore and ultimately prejudicing um, his way of grounding himself in what he thought was real yeah, I mean, it brings to mind Nietzsche and Beyond Knievel, where he says a philosopher's work is really just a reflection of his character. Right. Absolutely, I believe that. I mean, um, if you're predisposed towards uh, children, you're much more likely to end up in childcare than building right. or philosophy or whatever. Of course, you know, your character, which I think is sort of inborn mostly, mostly when you look at children, like twins brought up in the same household. I mean, yeah, yeah, totally. totally. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to show that character is innate to a certain extent. But... Um, but of course, your environment will affect that. So, you know, you might have a bent towards uh, science, but if it's not an offer in, in your country, then of course you won't do it and you'll perhaps be unhappy. You know, I think most people are not happy with it, content with their vocations. Yeah. Um, and that brings a lot of misery to reality. Mm. Um, and I think in many cases, people don't know what their vocation is. You know. Oh. So I'm quite lucky to 
to know that philosophy sort of makes me happy. I'm also sort of, you know, artistically orientated to some extent. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. So I, I believe I am too. Although what I am aiming at, and I think almost by necessity, if, if you take yourself to be artistically inclined, but end up doing philosophy, what's, what ends up happening is if you sort of have to build your own bridge to credibility, fundamentally, mm. given that the analytic philosophical institution, let's just say it's built on the rational intellect. Yeah, without the artistic element, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting because in a way, philosophy is the bridge between science and art, isn't it? But analytic philosophy is much more on the scientific side. Well, exactly. However, to be a good analytic philosopher, like Jaeguan Kim, one of my favourites, philosopher of mind, one has to have style in one's writing, and that's an art. Yeah, that is a craft. So the greatest analytic philosophers will still be artists in that sense. Bertrand Russell, even his early work was like that, you see. Bertrand Russell, one of the greatest of all English writers, I think. So you can't really avoid it. Whitehead said, um, style is the last acquisition of the educated mind. However, I think, um, yeah, so the boring analytic philosophers are the ones who have got no artistic uh, talent. But you can go too far in the other direction as well and, and exactly. just sort of where you'll end up in poetry. And some people say that Nietzsche, for example, was only a poet, not a philosopher. The ideal, really, I think is Schopenhauer. He's, he's right. He's, he's, you know, the golden mean. So he's got these great analytical moves, great logical moves. At the same time, um, the turns of phrase are beautiful. And the metaphors, his great metaphors, you know, are are, uh, sublime so so that's I think that's the ultimate aim you know a Schopenhauerian writer that's the ideal for the philosopher just between poetry and science right so I have one final thing especially because we don't have too much longer together irrespective of this recording and I don't know if I'll include this one but part of the idea that I'm using to try and tie together the broad domain of thought I'm trying to bring together in my dissertation these conceptions of part-making and whole-making, where part-making here is broadly construed as something like the power and immense instrumental utility associated with fixing the world and investigating it with analysis and empirically and what have you. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, this whole-making, which, to put it in the language of the conversation today, would be uh, a sort of identification with, or Hague sort of express it as, as bearing an affective relation to this source of transcendent value, something like that, where I guess the value accessible when holding yourself properly to the mode of intuition in the Bergsonian sense, it's what enables the creative evolution of, of Bergson in some sense, the creative metaphysics that, that essentially it's bound to creating a, or ultimately uh, maybe aligning itself with or creating itself with or holistically devising a schema for action, a set of hierarchically arranged goals, mm-hmm. even though you might not be consciously aware of exactly what they are. So in somehow it's, it's, it's going outside of the established structure where part making ostensibly only works within an already imagined whole to sort of echo it out. Nice. The whole making is what occurs when the explorer goes out into the unknown right and so i'm trying to use this notions of part making and whole making to sort of tie together the utility of both worlds because i want to save the utility obviously of science and save Mm. how accurately it's able to come to describe reality at certain levels 
Well, I recommend a book by William James called A Pluralistic Universe, mm. where he talks about the values of both intellect and intuition. And he uses three main thinkers in that book, which, it, which are Hegel, Fechner, and James. And He uses himself. Uh, sorry, Hegel, Fechner, and Bergson. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and, and himself, probably, yeah, I think yeah. he refers to them. But um, he contrasts, in, like Bergson does, intellect and intuition. And... Um, how a full understanding of reality requires this intuition along Bergsonian lines. But intellect, yeah, is um, cuts up reality into parts so that we can deal with it, you know. So, yeah. I mean, language itself, you know, every word, at least every noun we use is uh, cutting reality into that concept, you yeah. know, whereas in reality, of course, far transcends that word, you know, like apple or tree or something like this. And, you know, to talk about its entire evolution and its relation to everything else, its gravity, you know, whatever. So... When we communicate, we have to use abstractions, but the danger is reification, you know, like thinking that the abstraction, the concept is the sufficient totality. And um, it's very, you know, pe that's why people are prone to materialism generally, because, you know, everything's cut up into little parts, atomism, and it's ideal. And uh, we can express those relationship between those parts according to these forces that we've derived from observing regular occurrences and so on. But it's a real danger because, yeah, it's artificial cutouts. And when you realize that, then you enter metaphysics, I think, immediately. But, you know, that's like a whole book by him, so it'd be hard to say more. Yeah, no, totally. Whitehead again, Bugs. Whitehead's great. I mean, he calls it the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, very common, yeah. and the fallacy of simple location for an atom or a gene, for example. Um, so there's a lot to look into there, yeah. but yeah, process philosophy is, is the complete antithesis of that compartmentalizing intellectuality here. Process philosophy. Yeah. May as well sign off again, hey? So <laughs> okay. cheers very much, Peter. Thank you, Tim. Big thanks to Peter for joining me for these conversations. I really look forward to speaking to him again later this year. But at the end there, we touched on the dynamic between the intellect and intuition. In my work, aligned with the notions of part-making and whole-making, which also seek to bind the modes of analysis and mysticism into a sensical and mutually supportive knowledge-seeking process. I would say the characterization I gave of part-making and whole-making in this recording were definitely at an earlier stage of development and I definitely give a slightly different initial description now. I hope to publish this work in some form later this year but if you're interested to speak to me about it do reach out. You can reach me on the Voice Club Facebook page, on Twitter or at tim at voiceclub.com. Also if you're in Melbourne, Australia from time to time and want to get involved in some discussion forums reach out to me and we'll make that happen. Finally, if you find this podcast interesting, don't hesitate to share it and support it by signing up to the mailing list at voiceclub.com and by leaving a review on a platform like iTunes or wherever you listen to it. To hear more from Peter, you can visit his website at philosopher.eu and like his Facebook page at Ontologistics. So, there's a lot more coming this year. But until then, have a beautiful bloody life. <laughs>